I'm Dr. Gregory Moffitt, and I have been in clinical practice as a counselor for 30-plus years. Uh, most of my specialty has been with children, uh, but I've got experience in about every area of general practice and written extensively in books and articles and columns here and there. So uh, on top of that, of course, being a colleague of yours at Point University uh, for many years as well. Hey, everybody. Long, unplanned hiatus for the podcast because, well, my son decided to be born. Everybody is happy and healthy, and Jess was a total champ throughout the whole thing, but we are all three new at this, and as you'd expect, the parents are pretty sleep-deprived. William Wilder, however, is catching lots of naps, so he feels fine. We're figuring out our new lives, and part of that for me was deciding with Grant what to do on the podcast. We've decided to keep going, albeit at a slightly slower pace than we were. This episode was actually recorded about a month and a half ago. The voice you heard at the beginning was Dr. Gregory Moffat, a co-worker of mine at Point University. Dr. Moffat was kind enough to be interviewed for the podcast and to balance out my anti-APA bias. If you'll recall from the last episode, Grant and I were talking about the APA's guidelines for psychological practice with men and boys, a document that I felt had an anti-male bias. The rest of this interview should catch you back up. One final note before I get you back to the interview, we are starting up a blog which you can find at tdng.us. You can subscribe there for new episodes or on Google Play Podcasts and Spotify now that we've gotten around to that. We hope you'll check it out, and as always, thanks for listening. Um, so you and I have discussed this, or um, uh, Grant and I have discussed this, my podcasting partner, um, but seeing as we're both kind of shooting for from the hip, I thought it'd be a good idea to have somebody look over the document who has more experience in this area, uh, hence this interview. And so you've already looked over the document, um, and I'm curious what your impressions were for their, the author's overall goal in writing it. Why do you think they wrote it? Uh, what do you think their intended goal was? Um, well, just for clarification, it isn't an author. These kinds of documents are usually done by committee, so there's a lot of people that work on it to put it out because it is uh, typically this kind of thing is a very sensitive issue. Uh, so what the APA's goal was was to make clinicians aware of potential for gender bias in the clinical setting. That's sort of the shorthand version. Um, I think their goal was to open eyes to those who might be blind to issues that might be pertinent to them regarding gender for men and boys. Um, and I think generally it's probably a good idea. Okay. So you would agree then that there's been kind of an absence, at least clinically for the treating of men and boys specifically as like gendered treatment, that they've been the, the subject of most psychological experimentation and uh, uh, counseling, right? That it's always been sort of a looking at men specifically, but now this is looking at men as men. Does that, well, does that I think, make sense? I think so. Um, we've always been aware of gender issues. I say always, and at least in the last 30 years, it's been on the forefront. I think what happens over the course of our history is that we become more aware of issues that we've not necessarily attended to. So, um, gay and lesbian issues obviously have popped up over the last couple of decades as things we need to be conscious of, uh, women's issues, and this is simply one more in that process. So um, when we're looking at this uh, list of defined terms they have at the beginning, um, is there anything that you would add or remove from this list? Does this seem like an effective group of terms that they would need to define? Well, I do. And I 
asking the question, is it effective and do we need to be attentive to this? Yes, I would agree. Is there anything they've left out? I don't think so, but I'm sure there are people who would say so. If you were to Google sexual identity terms, you'll come up with over a hundred terms. I, at some point, I think it begins to be a bit redundant, but I think it is important for us to be clear what we're talking about and whether one likes an issue or not, or is comfortable with an issue, the fact that they exist is a separate question. Right. Right. So um, Grant and I already did one episode on this, and we discussed things that we sort of liked and disliked about it. And one of the things that I noticed when I was looking at it, or I, I reacted to, um, and this was the language that we used, is that my hackles kind of went up when I read it. And I got kind of from this a, a bit of an anti-male sentiment, or at least there were some parts of masculinity which were spoken of in a bit of a disparaging way. And that could very well be just my projection onto this document, right? Like I, I'm sensitive about some of these issues. And so when I look at it, I react negatively. It, so I, I guess what I'm asking here is, is, is was my reaction fair? I mean, I know it's a reaction. So, you know, it is what it is. Well, I, I certainly understand why you perceived it that way. And I can, I can read that into this document as I can often almost anything in my field. I mean, I was at the American Counseling Association's National Conference last week, and there was a workshop I went to on the ethics of um, atypical sexual orientations. And I'm not just talking about gay and lesbian, some really pretty extreme stuff. And it came across to me, not just that we should be accepting of our clients when they come in with extreme sexual fetishes, but almost condescending to traditional things like monogamy. And I don't think it was intended, but I think that it is easy to hear that when, uh, either whether it's intended or not, when we're talking about something like this, because the focus is to ask the question, what are we missing? So as, as I read this document, I was kind of primed for that myself. Mm -hmm. I did get a flavor of it. it. didn't bother me, though, because I, I I think I understand what they're trying to describe. So if it helps, I think what's missing that might have set you at ease a little bit is the article focused mostly on the dysfunction of masculinity rather than its function. Right. So, right. And – I don't think it's intended, but it sounds like all masculinity is bad, and that I don't think at all is what the purpose of the document is. Right, and I should provide some context from my environment as well, because part of my environment is point, and I don't get that sense very much at point, in fact, quite the opposite. But from my environment at Georgia State, I come from a place where the terms that they're defining and the language that they're using that's the about as conservative as you can get. It's a a, a very um, I was an extremely progressive environment, and so as the only person who is, and I, and I should say for a conservative, I consider myself pretty progressive, but the only person who's on the conservative side of things politically at Georgia State um, within my cohort, I think I'm I'm probably a little bit oversensitive to these things. Um, I do have a specific question. Um, there's a lot of discussion on so, like socially constructed concepts of masculinity. And in a bit, I want to ask you about how far that social construction goes, uh, or at least to what degree things are socially constructed versus, and I'll, I'm using air quotes, you can't see me, but are natural. Um, 
but uh, if, if you could erase one socially constructed concept of masculinity, I'm curious about what that would be. I don't know that I would eliminate it, but I think the purpose of the document addresses the thing that I would want to change, and that's the forced or assumptive nature of what it means to be a male. Um, I was born in 1961, so I grew up in a very masculine era of our country, sort of the tail end of you know, the man's man generations. And what men are perceived to be and why is in part socially constructed. And there were some things as a kid, for me, like boys don't cry, that's changed greatly. Um, men don't hug, um, I mean, in Western culture. So the the assumption that it must be this way is the problem, not that there is such a thing. So I wouldn't want to remove masculinity. I mean, if you like going out and uh, driving race cars or whatever you do that's perceived to be a socially constructed piece of masculinity, fine. But if your son feels like he can't be a real man if he does not also appreciate that, that's where I have issues. And I think that's what this document was trying to address. So would it be fair to say then that it's not social constructions you have an issue with? It's an assumption that a social construction is the default and you that have is to exactly adhere to it. it. Yes, that is exactly it. And, and we've done this with other things as well. So whether or not you're at least as a clinician, big issue for us is the gay and lesbian question or LGBTQ and all the other things that go into that arena. The religious questions aside, the personal preference question is aside. The fact is about 10% of the population identifies as homosexual. That is just a fact. And whether it's good or bad or desirable or not is secondary to that. So to assume that everybody has to fit the same mold in anything is potentially damaging. It's potentially challenging. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And it it seems to me, too, that if you're taking with you uh, a cultural norm or a standard that you're trying to enforce through your your sessions with a client, that that's also damaging. It's not the function of therapy to reify uh, a view of sexuality. Exactly. An interesting sort of anecdote. One of my good friends who was himself at one time a professional hunter, I mean, just the epitome of uh, masculinity, at least in a Southern definition, is uh, the father of a son who's about uh, nine or 10 years old. And this is a very demure child and not at all interested in any of the traditional sort of masculine things. And I'm so happy with my friend because he recognizes his view of what a boy should want is not what he can force on his son. And he's a good dad uh, because right. of it. You know, how frustrating it must be to a young young man like this boy who doesn't enjoy guns and doesn't enjoy hanging out in the woods. How challenging it would be is, is if his dad drug him out there and says, hey, you need to like this because you're a boy. I mean, it's not fair, any more fair than telling a boy who did like that, hey, you got to stay home and knit. Right. And one of the reasons this question came up for me is because I I am personally what I would call very non-gender performative in the sense that I come from a family that's very, you know, hunting oriented and outdoors oriented. And I was the I was the the Jacob and the Jacob and Esau oriented. I wanted to stay home and read and I love cooking. And between me and my wife, she has what would typically be considered the more masculine field. She's a you know, a lawyer who's very successful in this. And so my son's gonna be born into this home that is in many ways non gender stereotyped. And so addressing this issue um, or trying to find the, the precise words uh, to talk about this with him when he's older, obviously, uh, is something I've been really curious about. 
Um, I have another question, uh, a specific question from page seven of the document, and this is a quote. Um, Boys and girls begin to make distinctions between males and females during infancy and increasingly assign certain meanings to being male based on their gender socialization experiences. And I feel the claim here, um, and in the cited material, if you track down that citation, um, it seems to indicate that uh, that this is the result, uh, primarily or exclusively the result of gender socialization, this uh, understanding of selfhood. Um, and the, the actual chapter um, that this comes from, let me look up the title, is uh, The Gender Wars, A Self-Categorization Theory Perspective on the Development of Gender Identity. It seems to indicate that the or the claim seems to be boys and girls who self-categorize are doing themselves harm. Um, and so I guess my question is, is where does that lie? Cause you mentioned that some, some things are, are socially constructed and some things are not. And so I'm, I guess I'm asking like, how do you, how do you know what that difference is between what's socially constructed and what's not? Cause you don't want to, you don't want to reinforce social st- like uh, stig- stigmas or stereotypes but at the same time, you know, if if your boy wants to, you know, go hunting and, and drive race cars, right, then you want to allow them to do that. And I think that is the point of this whole document, frankly, because that that is the heart of the question. What is it that we create and what of that creation is part of our normal development given male and female? And there are some distinct differences between boys and girls. Um, there is no rule you can say 100% of boys do this and 100% of girls do that. But generally, girls' brains form differently, certain areas of their brain, and no, no joke aside, their linguistic area is bigger than it is in boys. Girls tend to um, process their thoughts verbally, where men tend to process their thoughts internally. Boys are by far more aggressive than girls in their play as adults. Ninety-some percent, and I think this is in the article, ninety-some percent of all violent crime is male-oriented. So there are some distinct biological differences, there's no question. But there also is no doubt that socialization, as stated here, starts from the time we know the gender of the child. I mean, we began choosing names, coloring the room, uh, buying toys and clothing based on what we think of as boy or girl. And some of it is overt, you know, going to a pink room. Oddly, pink used to be a boy color, but it changed in the 1950s or 60s. But go into a room, it's all pink, we think girl. And go down the toy aisle in any big toy store, and the girl aisle is pink. That doesn't mean that all girls like that. It just is a way we subconsciously and sometimes overtly stereotype or mold or socialize children to think a certain way because of their genetic makeup. Right. And it seems to me, too, that the difference between like pink and blue is entirely arbitrary. They they become categorization tools. And if you have a, a sexist idea about men or women then those categorization tools can become prescriptive, right? So a girl... Correct. Yeah, okay, good. Um, And just related to that, and I think this gets at the heart of some of what your frustrations with the article were, it's almost like being a man is a bad thing. I, I understand why you hear that. And it's not that being male is bad. I think what happens, especially in the liberal end of the political continuum, is there's an assumption because men have had power for so many reasons, uh, years and 
misused it so often, um, they owe something to the current generation. And maybe maybe we do, but a politician recently said, I think it was during the Kavanaugh hearings, that men need to just shut up. Well, you're doing exactly the same thing that you've complained about. We're not inherently bad because we're men. and. Right. I think that's what you might be hearing in a document like this. I, I'm confident in the APA that that's not their intent, but it would be easy to lean in that direction, especially if you're already predisposed to suppose that there's something damaging about um, sort of modern masculinity. Right. And two, there's a question of audience, the, the rhetorical question of audience. They're going to be writing to a highly educated population that skews left, generally speaking. And so they're probably not going to read into it the same things that I am. A lot of this is defensive for me on behalf of people I've known who fall into this sort of uh, quote unquote hypermasculine stereotype, but who have not exhibited a lot of these traits. And so I, my, my defensiveness is on behalf of people in my family and my community who I think handled this extremely well with someone like me, you know, the, the kid who's in musical theater and, and uh, uh, loves singing right. and dancing. Well, Grant, think about how how often over the years um, gender has been forced, just like right now for women, and this has been true for years, women are forced into a stereotype of what they should look like. That's very unrealistic. Right. And right. if you look at cartoon versions of men, for example, Little, um, uh, Beauty and the Beast, Gaston is it? this song about Gaston. I use antlers in all my decorating and, you know, I mean, it's clearly exaggerated, stereotypical male. And if you look at other stories like Ichabod Crane and Bob Cratchit in A, A Christmas Carol, these are the opposite end of the continuum and almost a joke because these aren't men. Right. Because they're, they're bookish, they're, they're uh, skinny, they can't defend themselves. Um, so – that's the kind of stereotypical thinking that this article is trying to combat. And as clinicians, in order to, in the very best of circumstances, we need to be aware of our blind spots. And that's what they're trying to do. Uh, certainly, it gets taken to extreme. I've read feminist literature that said a woman can't be a real feminist if she marries anyone but a woman. Well, that's pigeonholing everybody to fit your viewpoint, which is right. the same problem. It's just a different direction. So I, I see this document in the middle someplace. Right. And, and one of the things that Grant and I both agreed is that this definitely needed to be written. And it's very nice to have like a large scale uh, institution, something that has so much clout addressing this issue, saying stereotyping is not something that men do to women. I mean, it is, but it's not only that, right? That that Correct. some men can very much be, especially young men, can be victims of stereotyping, and that has, you know, long-lasting effects. And we are, and, it, it, you know, the pendulum just swings around in circles, and it, it's just a different target that's okay to make fun of. And right now, the political environment, it's okay to make fun of white men. Um, it's okay to make fun of people of religious faith, unless you're Muslim or, you know, a few select arenas. That's That will change. Uh, it was different in the past. Um, and I think right now we're an easy target, which is why I think that politician felt safe making the statement she made. I certainly – do you remember the comment I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah, I I know the context in which she said it. And when we're talking about sexual assault, I understand a man can't fully understand what a woman's experiencing. But to say that we can't use our brains is the same as saying a woman can't be a lawyer. 
which as your wife has proven, just is not so. Right, right. Or, or to that uh, um, only women who have been sexually assaulted are allowed to have an opinion on this because then they, they, like that, which is pure nonsense. Um, I, one of my, my consistent hates that we talk about on the podcast is Phil Dunphy, who uh, I think exists as an embodiment of what it's okay to be as a man now. Um, you're, you're allowed to be all of these things that I think men were prevented from being in the past, which, you know, emotional, very connected with your children. I think those are all totally fine. Um, but that comes along with a kind of laughable weakness and incompetence that is, um, I think part and parcel of what it's, it is to be a good man now is that incompetence. There's a a war on competence, I guess, is what it would feel like or what it feels like to me. I, I agree with you. And there's a comedian named Tom Papa who makes a very – he does a very funny routine about how men are portrayed as fathers as goofy. And he said it used to be fathers were the feared uh, power structure, and, and nowadays they're just a laughing stock. and cartoons show it and sitcoms show it. And I, even though his routine is meant to be funny, it, it most comedy is an exaggeration of reality and – the, the new normal is that traditional masculinity is bad, and if that's what you are, then something's wrong with you, which I don't think that's intended, but that's been the byproduct. Right. And so, right. so, so it seems to me, I guess, your view on the document or your read of the document is that it's trying to create room to be traditionally masculine is acceptable and to be non-traditionally masculine is acceptable. There are, and they even use the word in the document masculinities, that there are multiple ways of performing them, and they aren't good or bad. It's just, you know, you need to look at your client as an individual, not as a category of a whole sex or a whole gender. Correct. And what's missing is the, the traditional stuff because they don't have to explain that. So uh, we already do it. So they don't really need to tip a hat to that direction. It's kind of like w- w- when I teach counseling diverse populations, it's a cultural awareness class. I don't have to tell white people to be aware of white people. We already are. What I, I mean, we already know white culture. It's what right. Is, right. It's a part of us. So it's not that it's not valuable or doesn't matter. I don't have to teach that to you. What I have to teach to you is the stuff you don't know. And because of that omission in a document like this, that it's understood by at least some who read it, it sounds like they're leaving out a huge component, um, which at least in this case I don't think is what's happened. It's just not necessary to say it. Right. It's the default. It's probably not the default in a lot of the circles I run in, but and that's why I'm, or at least part of why I'm reacting. I'm also probably hypersensitive about it, so there's that. Um, the last question I have for you is, uh, had I known more, what questions should I have asked? Because I'm approaching this, you know, I'm an outsider in this field and I'm relatively ignorant, approaching a document that's got, you know, hundreds of citations in it. And so if there's something that I, I should have asked, what, what would that have been? Well, I thought about that question because you had posed it to me in some of our precursory uh, email in- interchanges. I can't really think of one. I, your reading of it, the only thing that you might have missed is just the clinical end because it's not your, your area. But I think you've read it carefully and have a pretty good grasp on what they're trying to say. Um, what, what – I'm not sure it's an omission on your part, but – what does this really do for us as clinicians? That's the question. And what it does for us, hopefully, is make us aware that boys and men may come into session with identities that don't fit our traditional views. We're already aware of obvious ones like uh, gay and lesbian identities, but this one's more subtle and maybe easily missed. 
and right. what brings what brings with it and you haven't expressed this in your situation but somebody like you have described yourself who's in a family or in a, a culture that says okay these are your interests but you're wrong about that or you're not successful or you're not a real man well that's obviously a problem okay well thank you so much dr moffat i really appreciate you um working with me here on this and i appreciate your uh um taking the time to read through this document and then to to talk with us about it and your expertise thank you very much that's my pleasure thank you